The last house on Sea Road stood in the field behind the dunes. Its windows looked north to Britain Head, south to Wreck Rock, east to the marshes, and from the second story, across the dunes and the breakers, west to China. The house was empty more than it was full, but it was never silent. Lightning recap. In Hand Cup Shell by Ursula Le Guin, the remaining family members of a deceased academic gather at the family beach house to marinate in intergenerational tension and regrets. I do hope you have a little time. I surely hope you have a little podcast. I should not do accents ever. <laughs> Nevertheless, this is Short Story, Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia here today with... The accentless Christy Baxter. No, you talk funny all the time. I just <laughs> didn't say anything. Speaking of funny, I, this whole weekend, was... Uh, sitting around just laughing, laughing, laughing over having watched uh, my favorite Adam McGillian films. And uh, I realized I should be reading a short story, but I couldn't think of what one I should have read. What short story should I have read? Well, you should have called me and asked because I could have told you to read Handcuff Shell by Ursula Le Guin. And this is our second Le Guin story. And this is a very, very different story from the ones who walk away from Amalos. Ah, yes. And this is one of her Oregon stories, he said with quotation fingers, because she was an Oregonian and she wrote a lot about and at Oregon. Oregon. I thought you were mispronouncing the word origin because you said Oregon stories and origin stories like a thing. Yeah, no, that whole thing just happened in my head. I'm just going to move past it, moving past it. I could cut that out, but I'm not gonna. Um, no, please don't. Keep it in. Keep it in. <laughs> but what, what's beautiful about it is it is a three-sided story as far as I'm concerned. It is a story about relationships between family members, of course. Relationship of focus, I guess is the best way to put it. And how a shift in a focus generationally changes the story. Generally was the word I was looking for, but I think generationally also kind of works. <laughs> it really does. It really does. There's definitely an intergenerational aspect here. And uh, I'm totally like dating myself. But interestingly, I recently, I've been going through a, a phase of rewatching all the things. Rewatch everything I've ever watched before. And last week was uh, the sadly only one season that exists of my so-called life oh yeah that's a and it was, it was a fantastic show oh my gosh i was watching it, i was like why was there only one goddamn season this is so upsetting um but i i definitely get a kind of that same sense from some episodes of that where they would be focusing on like the mother and the, the two daughters and you know who are kind of different not quite different generations, but enough of a gap between them that they they think and act very differently. And so you have that similar thing here where we're getting the thoughts from the grandmother, the mother, the daughter, the hand, the cup, and the shell, one might say, and sort of delving into the, the, the differences between them. Mm -hmm. And yes, and My So-Called Life is the second most tragic one season only after 
my favorite, Outsourced. Uh, very different show, though. Um, but uh, I think what happens, though, is that Le Guin plays a very, very, very dangerous game with this. Because you could have lost the reader at any one of a hundred points of the story. <laughs> and a couple times I did, but I also blame that on me being stupid. <laughs> yeah, my attention span is absolute crap today. I don't know what the deal is, but in the process of reading this, um, I reset my bank password. Uh, I looked over some tax forms that I need to do. I put up some posts on social media. I sent my my group chat a uh, a horrible 70s dinner party recipe of bananas and sardines um or no pickled herring but yeah it is it is not a story for when your executive functioning is a little bit low it's definitely not that i found it helped to read it aloud to my cats like the same person that i am and on this the day of my cat's quinceanera um <laughs> but i th- the beauty of this is that, and the third aspect is Le Guin's ability to drag you into what she wants you to see and understand. And there are few authors in the history of writing who get this as well as Ursula K. Le Guin does, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you can see that here. And one of the just absolute beautiful things is when you sort of finally, when the switch happens, when you're getting a, a POV switch and then you're sort of lost for a second, but then there's a moment that always hits you. You realize, oh, it's grandma. Yeah, it takes a minute. You have to, the POV switches are not signaled. Um, the, the POV switches are not blatantly signaled. They, they are smooth, which is actually the sign of a, a really good writer who's good at handling that kind of, you know, going from this, this third person um sort of point of view where we're going from one person to another is that she doesn't feel the need to make it explicit to the reader she trusts the reader to come along and to understand that and that i think it is truly uh, the mark of a writer who has risen above uh fear because one of the things i've always said i haven't not always i've said for a couple years and i continue to say that the source of so many writing problems, be it using too many commas, not enough commas, uh, head hopping and, and, and being like, you know, screwing up dialogue tags, all that stuff. Fear. It's all based in fear. I believe it was Donnie Darko who posited the fear-love dichotomy and the line between them, which is fascinating and yet also wrong. Uh, but I think the... <laughs> The thing here that I think she both gives the audience a lot of credit, but I think she's also doing something that is, I think the, the interesting thing is, I think at times she wanted us to be not necessarily confused, but wondering where the line is. I agree. I agree with that. And you know, this, honestly, this reminded me of nothing so much as a tracking shot in cinematography. I don't want to be the one of those people who explains the obvious to everybody, but just in case there are people who are not dorks about cinematography and stuff like that. Tracking shot is one of those long continuous shots um, that, that it doesn't break. We don't, we don't hop from like one character and all of a sudden we, the, the screen flashes to another character. It just is 
a long shot uninterrupted. And it kind of felt that way in this story where we were going from character to character. And I think that was because it was seamless, but also we were expected to follow along. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it definitely has that, uh, it can be bumpy, but if it's bumpy, it's the reader's fault, I'm going to say, which I take full blame because it was bumpy at times for me. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's no question. And what I like about that is one, it gives us a bunch of, uh, it makes us sound like we're smarter than we are. Um, Cause I think that ultimately what she wanted you to do is to get through it and to have an impression that you then had to go back and foster through a rereading. I think more than any other writer I know, I think Ursula K. Le Guin wanted you to not just experience her work once, she wanted you to dive back in. And you definitely see that in the word for world is forest. Um, that's the one that always hits me that I could tell she left you breadcrumbs that you could not get on the first pass that you had to go back through. And it's a wonderful story, probably my favorite non-novel, which is now a novel, but it originally wasn't a novel. And yeah, but I think here she does some stuff with, I think Ursula K. Le Guin in this case is a paragraph writer, but I also think she was burying her brilliance. And I think this might have been a story that she had a whole bunch of phrases that she'd wanted to put out in the story and she just needed to flesh out a story to put it into but self-respect wasn't a saint's business, was it? Uh, <laughs> I, I read that line and I was like, Chris is going to have something to say about that. I knew it. I just knew it. It's, it's the perfect line. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, yeah. And that whole paragraph that is built around it, because it's not the beginning or the end of the paragraph. <laughs> it's right in the middle. And it 100% draws you to it. She understands how to get to the heart of something and to put things around it that both bolster it as well as make you sort of look away a little bit so that when it comes, you hit it hard. Just like that thing in the parking lot the other day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I also love, there's the whole section in here that I'm going to read verbatim. That means by the mouth. Uh, The jeans weren't even good for rags even if they would sell in the Soviet Union for $100, see through them after the shirt and knock the wastebasket over. You are talking a very, very specific time <laughs> when everyone knew that jeans were the biggest thing in Russia. But this little concept is so tiny, so minuscule, and yet it seems to have so much overall meaning that it was like, these aren't even good for rags, but yet they have to be sort of maintained. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of that same uh, thing we did back in, you know, the, the same days as, as not really letting go of jeans where we kept shoe boxes for some reason and used them as storage. I did, it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that I looked at my shoe boxes and I was like, why do I keep these? I'm not doing anything with them. It's stupid. And yet it's hard to let go of those things sometimes. I, on the other hand, make dioramas. <laughs> well, that is really one of the few other uses for a shoebox, aside from storing photographs, which, who has those these days? You've just negated my entire existence. Thanks, Christy. That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> this is a fascinating story that one of the things I do love about it 
is it is not heavily anti-academia. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, there are moments, but it's not like reading, say, a Dean Koontz novel. Yes. You're exactly. <laughs> or honestly, a Dan Brown novel. Yeah, yeah. Those men have a bone to pick with academia. <laughs> but there's a lot of sort of it's very pro-intellectualist, I think is the best way to put it. Um, but not necessarily pro-intellectualism. And I think that play back and forth, how it is, these people are personified as being very smart. <laughs> but also very reflective of their internalized intelligence. And I find that to be fascinating because most writers would choose to either say, you know, they are completely non-accepting of their own intelligence uh, to the point where they just go and pass it off, i.e. me, um, or they are hyper aware and everything falls in that line. And again, Le Guin makes this little slurry that is just so perfect that you can dive in and it feels more like real people who happen to have extraordinary not necessarily circumstances, but extraordinary place in the world in which they're in, which I guess is technically circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a trap I think people fall into when they want to criticize academia, and that's that they criticize the people who are in it rather than the institutions that are incredibly flawed that are the only place for those people to go. You know, <laughs> like if you... <laughs> want to teach at a high level where else is there where else do you go somebody please tell me other than a freaking college you know you go to the university and you teach and so that's pretty much what we're stuck with if that's the path we want to follow it has its ups it has its downs but to to constantly disrespect everyone in it and generalize i think is um it's it's the easy way out whereas mm. understanding that um maybe some people are trying to change it from the inside as difficult as it is, or that, you know, like sometimes following your dreams is uh, not everything it's cracked up to be. Yeah, there are two places you can go. Uh, you could either go uh, to become a podcaster. Ah, oh, there is that. Yes. Or a cult leader. Uh, those are your choices. Um, I know which one makes more money. <laughs> oh, podcasting. Uh, anyhow. Uh, I thought this was a marvelous story that I am so glad I dug back. I'd probably read this 10, 15 years ago and had come back to it in the uh, beautiful collection Prize Stories 1991, the O. Henry Awards, um, uh, which is in the collection of Forever Soroyan. Um, and I think now it has a little bit more, now that we've seen a blossoming of the ability to access higher level intellectual informations uh, because of the rise of the web, which was only a couple of years after she wrote this, we have now seen sort of a recontextualization of what it means to be an intellectual in America. And I think this really speaks to a time when it wasn't that easy, when it wasn't that broad and where arguably it was better defined that allowed for more of a attachment of the individuals within that group. 
Absolutely. That's all I have to say. That was easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but yes, anything else on this one there, Christy? Um, just that uh, I like the title. I had to think about it at the end, but I, th I think I understand it. It's kind of like that, that, that Russian nesting doll concept. Hand holds the cup, cup holds the shell, um, but not as obvious. Like she could have gone with the obvious Russian nesting doll, but she went a different direction. Um, and I, I, I think that it's, it's very much how the story is scaffolded and how it's constructed as well as also relating to the connection between the, the main, um, main characters here. This is going to blow your mind. It's all about five guys. Oh, oh, well they, they're, they're fries. I mean, you can't beat them. And the peanut shells. See? There we go. <laughs> wheel, wheel. Hey, Christy. Yes, Chris. What should we read next week? Next week, we should read The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant. Yeah. Well, very good. A wonderful author, and I'll have so many things to say and be able to use it as a write-off for work. So... <laughs> Excellent. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, until then, this hath been short story. Shortest podcasteth. Verily. Ha, ha, ha.